Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well. I am in crunch mode right now because I am leaving to go on a trip this weekend. My first trip in some time, I will say. My first trip into the sunshine or further into the sunshine. I'm going on a beach trip this weekend, this season, like the first one I've done since summer. So I'm dying to get out of here, dying to lay on a beach chair and just like feel the sand beneath my toes. I'm just desperate for it. So I'm just in that final crunch mode getting things done, drinking a ton of coffee, not sleeping a ton in preparation to hopefully take it easy this weekend. So that being said, I'm on coffee number two, but we are about to have quite the episode today. I researched this really incredible story that I actually had randomly stumbled into a documentary on Netflix. This is honestly echoing last week's episode where I talked about this documentary that I saw and it really inspired me, but I feel like there's nothing quite like a documentary about something you know nothing about to really get the wheels turning. Like, you know, I feel those people out there that are like, oh, documentaries are boring. Should just revisit that. Should revisit your thought on that and really think about it and think about why you say that. Because sure, like there's some boring ones. There's some boring ones of everything. If you think of like ice cream flavors, there's boring ice cream flavors. But to some, it's not boring at all. To some, it's their favorite. So, you know, that's my mentality on that. Maybe just... uh Revisit your thought if you're one of those people who proclaim you don't like documentaries because truly nothing has made me more interested in the world around me than documentaries that I've watched on various platforms. But I saw this one that was about the inner workings of the intelligence industry or like, what do you call it? Like secret agents and like spies and things like that. Actually, oh wait, I remember what it's called. It's called Spycraft on Netflix. I watched one episode of it and I was hooked. It's really great storytelling, really interesting stuff. I always wonder like who among us, who walks among us and is a spy. Like these are like the intrusive thoughts in my head. Like, is this person working for someone? Why, you know, I, things I think about. So I watched this documentary and it was really, really good. There's this one episode that has to do with something that has to do with something that has to do with the episode I'm going to bring you guys today. The topic, the person I'm going to share about today was brought up in one of these episodes. And so see, gears are turning. It's fabulous. I usually rely on Reddit and random websites to come up with like fun facts and things to share on here, but I've now delved into new territory with these documentaries. So if you guys have a documentary, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but if you guys have one that you want to share with me, please DM me. I love hearing what you guys have to say. So that being said, I guess just in terms of personal updates, yep, I'm going on vacation this weekend. I'm going to Turks and Caicos. That's cool. And then what else? Oh, I just launched a new batch of merch. I have two designs that just hit hot off the presses, hit the uh, website, katiebilatidesigns.net. I think is my website. Yeah, it is. It's in my bio on my Instagram. It's funny how like every platform, it's like YouTube has the description box. TikTok has the caption and then Instagram has like the bio or does, I guess TikTok also has a bio, but what do you say? Like link, it's like in the, the caption. I don't even know. Anyway, so that is where the store is. I have two designs that are out, both of a sketch that I created in 2020. It's this girl drinking a martini. I've posted it a bunch before. Even one person has gotten it tattooed, I know for a fact. So it's a great sketch. I decided to make it into a print and into a tote bag. So those are hot off the presses in my store. Very exciting week in that respect. And 
like I said, we're just in crunch time, getting things out the door, getting things done, checked off the list. And then I will be sitting on my butt, hopefully reading some amazing novels that I just got on Amazon and like all will be well this weekend for me. So, and I hope to be kind of not online as much. Like I want to really just like let myself breathe and not be on my phone because it's a glorious, glorious thing where you step back and you realize, wow, I was in a really great mood that day. I wonder why. And it might be directly correlated to the amount of time you were online, <laughs> you know, in like a, a, one of those sorts of ways where it's like you weren't online very much at all. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into today's story, the life that I'm going to share with you guys today. And this person that I'm going to talk about there's a chance you might have heard of her before, but there's also a chance that you might have heard a story that is far from the truth. So today, armed with what I could find on the internet, so of course, who actually knows if it's true, but there are some legitimate sources I got this information from, so we're going to go with that. But I'm going to share with you guys the story of a woman named Matahari. And Matahari was an exotic dancer and a siren spy who has been named the ultimate femme fatale. Even after her death, she has inspired and mystified people. Was Matahari really a spy or just a woman in love who found herself involved with the wrong people at the wrong time? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to theorize. We're going to do all the things. But let me start from the very beginning. So before she was Matahari, she was born Margarita Gertruda Zell in 1876. And she was, by all accounts, born to a prosperous family in Northern Holland. But when she was a teenager, her father, who was a hat seller by trade, somehow came upon hard times due to some bad investments and ended up losing his entire fortune. And then he promptly actually left the family in the dust to fend for themselves. And to make matters even worse, Margarita's mother died when she was just 15, and she was then sent away to live with relatives. So a very rocky start in her childhood. And then just three years after this all happened, after her whole world turned upside down at just 18, Margarita met and soon married Rudolf John MacLeod, who was an officer in the East Indies Army. And very interestingly, this is how she met him. And honestly, it's very telling of her character and just like who she was, she actually had boldly answered an inquiry in the newspaper. So it was one of those things where there was an advertisement. This guy or someone close to him had put an ad in the newspaper advertising the fact that he wanted a wife. And so she answered this inquiry in the newspaper and sent him a photo of herself. She sent this striking photo of herself, raven-haired, olive-skinned, and she hoped that sending him a photo would give her a better chance. It's kind of like eerily similar to the modern dating app concept of today. But he, of course, because it was the time that it was, and it's just the craziest thing, he was almost twice her age. So just wanted to share a little trigger warning before I continue. Nothing super in detail, but trigger warning abuse. So definitely just like skip forward a few times if this triggers you. Once they got married, they both left for the Dutch East Indies, where they lived for four years in military garrisons, because like I said, he was an officer in the East Indies Army. But the marriage was troubled. In one of her letters, Margarita wrote that her husband, quote, came close to murdering me with the bread knife. I owe my life to a chair that fell over and which gave me time to find the door and get help. 
So I can't imagine how alone and scared she must have felt dealing with a husband like this that had this temper and all of that when she was just 18 years old with no mother, no father to call, just heartbreaking. But she didn't stay heartbroken and powerless for long, and we will get there soon. But we are not there yet because in another letter that Margarita wrote, she said that my own husband has given me a distaste for matters sexual such as I cannot forget. She said that while she was in the Dutch East Indies, she had contracted syphilis from her husband and had to undergo mercury treatment, which is really so interesting. I looked into this. I had no idea this was a treatment for so long for a lot of sexually transmitted diseases, but she so sadly got syphilis from her own husband, one, and then two, had to undergo mercury treatment, which because these are the days before penicillin, this could have killed her. Like mercury, we know mercury poisoning is no joke. Mercury is a very, very intense element. (laughs) I don't know, but I won't get into like full detail about how it was used, but it was known to cause major neurological problems as well as swollen gums, rotting teeth, and hair loss. So while it might have helped with the symptoms of these STDs, like it still ended up like affecting people. But luckily, somehow, I'm not sure how, Margarita, though going through this, ended up not experiencing any of these things severely. But she was definitely scarred. And this is something to note going into the later parts of this episode. So Margarita and her husband ended up having two children. They had a son and a daughter, but in mysterious circumstances, their son died. And there was a rumor that went around that, I'm not sure if this is true, but that he was poisoned by a nanny. All we know is that he passed away. The daughter survived and It's kind of sad from here because Margarita and her husband, they went back to Holland and separated because it just was not working between them. But her husband refused to pay child support to help Margarita raise her daughter without him. So it was pretty much like this predicament where Margarita could take her daughter with her, go somewhere, but the husband was not going to help her at all. And she had no means of supporting herself on her own, let alone another person, like a daughter. So It was either that or she could leave her daughter with the husband and go off and try to make money and figure her way out on her own without the daughter. So very terrible, horrible predicament she was put in, but she had to make a choice. And so she did. She ended up going to Paris, leaving her daughter with her ex-husband and going to Paris. And she wrote in one of these letters that she wrote many of. There's many letters, which gives us a lot of insight into what she was feeling, what she was doing, which is great that we have these. But she said, quote, I thought all women who ran away from their husbands went to Paris. So that's what she did. And this one curator of an exhibit that was dedicated or is dedicated to the life of Matahari said that she had to make a choice, go to France and get a life for herself or be poor and live in poverty and try to raise her child without any help. And this curator's name is Hans Groenweg. And Hans said she chose to go to France and build up a career, but she always missed her child. So that being said, she went to France in 1905. And while she was there, she tried everything to earn money in a respectable, normal way, giving piano lessons, teaching German, applying even to work as a lady's companion, as a model in a department store. She tried absolutely everything that she could that she had the skills to do, but it just was not enough to fully support her. So she had to do some things that she didn't necessarily want to do. 
but she had to do. So in a letter, Margarita wrote that she had gotten a job in France with a theater company, but she also was super honest and admitted in this letter that she was also sleeping with men for money. And she said, quote, don't think that I'm bad at heart. And she actually wrote this to her ex-husband's cousin, who oddly had been working as like the intermediary, the like the middleman to relay messages to her family. So she wrote to the ex-husband's cousin, not to the actual ex-husband, but she said, don't think that I'm bad at heart. I have done it only out of poverty. And one of her lovers actually was the one that suggested she get into exotic dancing. So I guess she hadn't really thought about it before. Maybe she had some theater interest, but not fully in the exotic dancing realm. But One of her lovers suggested she get into it, and she said, probably, you know what, why not? And she attempted to dig herself out of poverty by exotic dancing and creating this like show of sorts that she began touring all over Europe. And in this show, she told this elaborate tale about how she was born in a sacred Indian temple and taught ancient dances by a priestess who gave her the name Matahari, meaning eye of the day. And Yeah, she just wove this elaborate tale about her true origin, which, as we know, is totally fabricated. Like, in reality, we know that this woman was born in a small town in Northern Ireland, and her real name was Margarita, not Matahari, but no one else knew this. No one else really knew her at all. And a reporter in Vienna saw the show and reported that Matahari was this slender and tall woman with the flexible grace of a wild animal with blue-black hair. And another newspaper writer called her so feline, extremely feminine, majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms. So she got these rave reviews in her travels, in her show's traveling tour. And you might be wondering, how did she come up with this story and how... How was she educated enough to know about ancient dances and these facts that could back up her story, her fictitious origin story, enough to convince people that it was true? And so we have to remember, she was traveling a lot with her former husband because he was an officer in the army. So she got a pretty superficial understanding of Indian and Indonesian dances when she briefly lived in Malaysia with that former horrible husband of hers. So she got the knowledge then and just decided to adopt this new persona. It was kind of like her alias, you know? Matahari was an alias, not a real person, really. But anyway, so Matahari, she was pretty convincing in her story, especially because most of her routines consisted of strip teases and in some cases, full-on nudity. Like, she often had her whole backside exposed with just tassels on the front, if you know what I'm saying. And she packed dance halls and opera houses from Russia to France and became extremely famous. But yeah, she found a way through her shows to live a very decent, comfortable, glamorous, travel-filled life, financed often by wealthy men, a lot of which were bankers, and she was doing okay for a while. She'd gotten herself out of the poverty rut and was doing okay for a bit and, you know, just surviving from the money that she got from the performances and the men who came to watch. And fast forward, let's go nine or ten years later to the outbreak of World War One. This is 1915. So Matahari was well known for her whole essence for her act. She gained significant popularity with her exotic dancing, but it's been like a decade now and her fame was fading. 
younger dancers were entering the scene with these new names and tales. And she just wasn't as exciting anymore. She wasn't bringing in as much money from the dancing as she used to. And because of this, she ended up leaning further into her seduction techniques and attracted some very high-ranking military officers who helped fund her life. And she soon found herself with some very important lovers. We have to think about it. It was the outbreak of World War I, and she ended up finding her way into military circles, mixed nationalities, some French, but some from other places. And a bunch of these lovers happened to be German officers. And if we recall... From history class, here is the breakdown of who was against who, because it gets a little bit blurry when you think about it, especially if you don't study history. So during the conflict of World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, it was Germany, it was Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Ottoman Empire, these were the central powers, versus Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Canada, Japan, and the U.S., and these were the allied powers. So just a little refresher. The only ones that matter to us today is France versus Germany. So Germany being a central power, France being an allied power, they didn't like each other. They didn't play nice during this time. To be cozy with the Germans as a French citizen, or at least a French resident, was not a great look. But even worse would be to cozy up with both French officers and German officers and trade secrets go behind the French officers back to divulge military secrets to the Germans. And that is precisely what people said Matahari did. But is that the truth? I don't know. Let me tell you in detail. So the curator, Hans, who created that exhibit dedicated to Matahari and knows a lot about her life, said she had always been used to talking with officers, going out with them, dancing with them, living with them in a totally different surrounding. In wartime, those officers that she loved so much were against her. It must have been very difficult for her to get a grip of that time. So even before wartime, she was hanging out with important people in France, and now they were all skeptical of her. Like, imagine how that feels. Anyway, so Matahari's spontaneous travels and her odd friendships with the Germans soon attracted attention from British and French intelligence who put her under surveillance. They really thought that she was trading secrets to the bad guys or like any shred of information that she knew. They were suspicious of her. Because her home country remained neutral during World War I, she was allowed to cross borders freely with like very little hassle, and that she did. She was going all over the place. People were very concerned, like back in France, what she was up to. But what was she doing during those travels, and what details was she divulging in enemy territory? No one really knew, but they were definitely suspicious. So at this point in our story, Matahari is now 40 years old, which, if you think about it, was pretty old for an exotic dancer. So with her dancing days clearly behind her, Matahari found herself falling madly and deeply in love with a 21-year-old Russian captain. And his name was Vladimir de Maslov. Hope I'm saying that right. So 40-year-old Matahari, 21-year-old Vladimir started seeing each other very seriously in 1916. And during their courtship, Vladimir actually got sent to the war front. And while he was there, he got a really bad injury that left him blind in one of his eyes. So that being said, very devastating injury. He would, you know, need someone to support him after that, especially back in those times. Like I can't imagine he was doing very well during that and needed someone to support him. And so Matahari, loving him as much as she did, decided that she needed 
to do whatever she could to find work to support him and herself also, but him, this love of hers, without dancing or stripping or sleeping with anyone. So she wanted to find a different sort of job. And she did. It was a very lucrative assignment, actually, that she was given by this man named George Ledeau, who was an army captain who, after surveilling her, realized that Matahari had these contacts, these German contacts, and people trusted her. So maybe this could actually work in France's favor and they could use Matahari to get information for them. Honestly, kind of genius of him to think of her for this. And it was a paying job that would help her and she would then be able to support her German boyfriend. Kind of messy, but she did what she had to do. So Matahari later insisted that she planned to use her connections to seduce her way into the German high command and get some juicy secrets and then give them over to the French. But she never got that far. So she insisted that she was going to do it. And she later on even said, no, this was the plan, but it just never happened. So this is where she started. She met this German attache, which I found means someone who is like a member of staff in an embassy. So maybe not like the biggest fish, but kind of the first link, the first stop for her to get information. So she met this guy and she began tossing him bits of gossip, hoping to get some valuable information in return. Like she'll give him a little shred, he'll give her back in return some information that she could give to the French and get her money. So a pretty good strategy, if you think about it, give some little shreds of things that could be true, could be false in exchange for bigger information that she can give to the French. So it backfired majorly, unfortunately for her. So instead of getting anything useful out of this guy, she actually got named as a German spy in communications that this guy sent to Berlin. So he identified Matahari as a German spy. This German man identified this woman as a German spy. And these communications were sent to Berlin. But before they got there, they were intercepted by the French. So maybe he thought that she could actually be trusted or maybe she actually was a spy. Like there's so much like gray area here. Really, no one knows the truth. This is just what Matahari said that she had done. But who the heck knows what's true? But I'm going to get into like more details and you can think about it. But here's the thing. So then from that, like the French intercepted that message and they were like, oh, snap, she's two timing us like she is two timing us. There's no other way to put it. Like she's like she screwed us over. She's lying. She she took this information and gave it to the Germans and didn't get us anything in return. Like she's a traitor. And some historians believe that the Germans suspected Matahari was a French spy and actually set her up. So they did this by deliberately sending a message falsely calling her a German spy, but they knew that she wasn't. They just said that because they knew that the French would decode the message easily and come and get her for them, like take care of her so they didn't have to like end her in a horrible way. But you have to think about it because among her lovers, she had many, many lovers, but one of her lovers was a man named Major Arnold Call of German military. So people thought that Arnold might have been the reason for this expose. Like he did this intentionally or like told someone to do it intentionally and essentially like make it known to the French that Matahari was a traitor, even though she actually wasn't. He just wanted her to get, to be gone. He maybe thought she was a nuisance or like a major liability. He wanted to get rid of her allegedly. So using a code that maybe he knew the French had already cracked, he transmitted a message 
easily identifying her as a spy. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but pretty much Matahari was found out or was accused of something. Like people thought that she was up to something, the French and the Germans potentially. Who knows? Like she was one of these people that I don't know if she ever actually took a side, really. I mean, being this Dutch woman who had been honestly let down by so many men in her life. And I don't know if she ever felt truly linked or you know, tied to any one country or place at any point in her life. But of course, we could theorize and talk about it all we want. Like, was she a spy? Was she not? Was she a traitor? Was she not? But it doesn't even matter because back then, the French authorities quickly found and arrested Matahari on the spot in the luxury hotel that she was staying in and arrested her for espionage in Paris on February 13th, 1917. They promptly threw her into a rat-infested cell at the prison St. Lazare, where she was allowed to see only her elderly lawyer, who just so happened to be a former lover of hers. During lengthy interrogations by military prosecutors, Matahari, who, as we know, had long lived this super fabricated life. Like, that wasn't even her real name. So, naturally, she found it difficult to keep her facts straight. Like, she'd lied about her nationality, her upbringing, and literally everything for so long and lived this alias sort of life. I imagine it was very tough for her to keep even, like, just her name straight. Like, remember what even, like, small details of her story was, or maybe even, like, basic details, like where she was on a given day, what she said, like, I bet it must be so tough to keep it all straight when you're living a lie. But eventually, after intense interrogation, she dropped a massive bombshell right there into the prosecutor's laps. She said that a German diplomat had once paid her 20,000 francs to gather intelligence on her frequent trips to Paris. So yeah, let that sink in. What side do you think she's on based on that information? But she swore on her life that she never actually went along with the scheme. She always remained loyal to France. Like she never was pro-German, but they were all probably rolling their eyes so far back in their heads at that because I don't know. It's tough. Like if you think about it, this was a woman who had been abused, moved away from her family, from her child in search of a better life, only to find herself in poverty, needing to do literally anything. Like she just wanted to get by and get out of the rut of poverty, turned to, you know, doing these things that maybe she wasn't proud of or spending a lot of time with these men. But did she ever actually trust any of them? Like, you know, she was desperate. And at least from what I understand. So she might have gone along with these Germans, not because she was loyal to them. She was probably loyal to anyone who would give her money at that point. You know, once you start, it must be hard to stop. You know, once she had gotten that fame and that glory, like it's so much easier said than done to be like, okay, I'm going to like maybe straighten out my path now and, um, you know, go on the straight and narrow and not do these things that maybe don't bring me a lot of joy or make me feel good about myself. Anyway, Back to the story. So Matahari told the interrogators that she simply viewed the money she got from that diplomat, the German diplomat, as compensation for furs and luggage that had once disappeared on a departing train while German border guards hassled her. So kind of like she accepted the money as a reimbursement of sorts, but she never gave him any information about Paris, like never, never. And she said, this verbatim, this is a quote. She said, a courtesan, I admit it. A spy, never. And courtesan means mistress. I have always lived for love, she said, and pleasure. 
So the men who interrogated her came to the conclusion that she was a spy. No surprise there. They're probably like, you, we don't believe you because who would believe this woman? Because men. They actually only deliberated for less than 45 minutes before returning a guilty verdict. And the prosecution then blamed her, Matahari, exotic dancer, for the deaths of 50,000 French soldiers. But there was no specific evidence or explanation as to how she could be the only cause for 50,000 deaths. Like they just laid that on her. Like that was her doing. And author Pat Shipman, who wrote this book called Femme Fatale, Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Matahari, said that no one ever identified any specific defeat or leak of information that could be blamed on her. So technically, I guess they had said, okay, you're responsible for 50,000 deaths because something that you said to the Germans resulted in combat that resulted in that many deaths. But like this author said, there was no specific leak that was identified that was specifically tied to Matahari. So today, as we know, this just would not fly. Like if there's no concrete evidence, guilty until, or innocent until proven guilty, sorry, that's how it goes here, at least in the United States. But it was a different time. Even if she deserved jail for her supposed involvement, like she shouldn't have been treated the way that she eventually was for the unknown, for maybe just a little bit of sketchy behavior, you know? And Matahari, upon hearing this, upon hearing the guilty verdict, upon hearing that she was going to be sentenced to death, screamed, it's impossible. It's impossible, she said upon hearing this verdict. Now, the possibility of being with and helping her 21-year-old lover was squashed in an instant and her life as well, everything she's worked for. She maintained that she was never more loyal to one side over another. She thought of herself as like this She didn't say this, but like almost like a Switzerland type where she very much was in the middle and like didn't really take one side uh, over the other. She was where the money was. Like she just wanted to make her money and support herself any way that she could. But instead, she got dragged into the French versus German drama. But the question is, this is the huge question, the huge buzz question here. Do we believe her? Do we believe her? Was this a woman in this dire situation who used seduction to get herself out of poverty? Or was this a France-residing woman who truly favored the Germans and was fucking with them and was a spy? Like, we don't know. We truly don't know. The fact that she had this German lover, it's hard to know if she truly saw him as just a man or saw him as a German that she would do anything to help. Like, I don't know. It's very hard to say. But most historians that have dedicated their lives to researching her maintain that she did not, she was not a spy. But again, we don't know the truth. We don't know the truth because she never confessed to anything other than innocence before she was put to death. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because it's very interesting. So Not to like obviously dwell on death, but the way that she went really says everything about her character. So in the early hours of October 15th, 1917, Matahari was shaken awake in her prison cell. It was time. Given a pen, ink, paper, and envelopes, Matahari was allowed to write two letters, according to an account by journalist Henry G. Wales, uh, who was a correspondent for the International News Service. And so she hastily scribbled the notes before pulling on her black stockings, high heels, and a blue velvet-lined cloak, 
that had fur at the bottom. And she then put on a tri-corner hat with, so it is what it sounds like, like three corners to a hat, which was fashionable at the time. But now to me, it looks like a pirate's hat. I was looking it up for this story. But the takeaway is that she was dressed to the nines. Like she appreciated good fashion. And this was her outfit for the last moments of her life. So that says a lot. But she then told the person who had come to get her that she's ready. She goes, I am ready. That's it. So she was then driven from her cell to an old fort on the outskirts of Paris. And it was just past 5.30 a.m. when she stood there facing her firing squad, 12 French officers with rifles. Was that necessary, though? 12 officers, one defenseless woman. I mean, she was a powerful, like, you know, she had her her strength in other ways, but she was unarmed. Did they really need 12 officers? But once I get into my theory, it might make a little bit more sense why they came on so strong. So she was then offered a white cloth to wear as a blindfold so she didn't have to see herself get shot, but Matahari refused it. She said, must I wear that? And refused to wear a blindfold. She wanted to see and look into the eyes of those people who were going to end her life for no good reason. Legend has it that the officers drew their weapons and it was as they did this that Matahari, who was 41 years old, allegedly blew a kiss to her executioners. But a lot of historians now say that she didn't actually blow a kiss, but she instead, everyone agrees on the fact that she stood firm. She didn't flinch. She didn't cry. She just stood there and accepted it. No blindfold, no flinching. Wow. And then they fired and she was killed in an instant when their multiple gunshots exploded as one. The siren spy, Matahari, was no more. And I'm saying spy in quotation marks because I don't know what I believe, guys. I don't know. But the day after Matahari was killed by firing squad, her death made headlines, of course. It said that the end of a spy, Matahari has been executed by firing squad. Yesterday, the Hindu dancer atoned for the odious treason against France of which she was guilty. And this was the front page of like their most important journal. And another newspaper said, Matahari paid with her life for the treason she committed against France that had so warmly welcomed her. Oh yeah, so warmly welcomed her. Okay, sure, whatever. I don't know. I'm just like so skeptical about this whole tale. But of course, from there, the rumors flowed endlessly. Like a lot of people were saying that the French executioners had actually not fired real bullets. They had fired blanks, aka no bullets. So she got away. And they like let her kind of escape and start a new life. But the truth, as we now know it, was far less exciting. After she was killed, her remains were donated for research to the University of Paris Medical School. And it's kind of a sad revelation that you have when you think about it. Like her body had gotten her through her life, like through hard times and into even harder times. And in the end, no one claimed her body. No one claimed it. It was... You know, she was on her own once again, as she had always been. No one ever really knew who she was, you know, but you could look at it positively as like her body then went on to help teach and to lead to important discoveries medically. So she ended up helping the French after all. But 
it's just very sad, all of it. Very sad. But however the public chose to remember her as a spy or in other not-so-kind ways, the German government actually ended up exculpating Matahari in 1930. And exculpating means clearing of guilt or wrongdoing. So she was known as this innocent woman who died wrongfully to the Germans. But the French never adopted that mentality, which... I guess makes sense because the Germans never were really like they were kind of benefited by her, but the French never went back on their word or what they said, like on their opinion. They, you know, in my mind, I hold strong to this belief. I really do think that they used her as a pawn. Like, I really think that she was just to them, to the French, a scapegoat. She was inconvenient at first, and then all of a sudden extremely convenient because she could be used as this pawn. And I want to share more on that. So if you think about it, it makes sense because it was 1917 and the French at this point in the war were in hot water. Like the government had to find a way to show everybody almost as like propaganda, as like a wartime comfort to know that they're on the right track, that they're doing well. Like despite the fact that the Germans were kind of gaining on them, biting at their heels, plus the Russian Revolution, plus a, a ton of mutinies, like they wanted to show we are on our game. France is going to hold out and be okay. Like we're going to win. By executing this woman, like the government showed that it was willing to do anything, like do whatever it took, like desperate measures, but like strong measures to like remain in the running, remain firm and strong against the Germans. Like they're not going to let these things slide. Like this woman could be a spy. So let's just scream from the rooftops that she indeed is a spy. And we're going to kill her in this dramatic fashion of 12 people with rifles. And like, it's going to be on all the front page headlines, this woman, French traitor, German lover, we're going to kill her and make an example out of her and show that we are going to be victorious. We are going to shoot down anyone in our path. You know what I mean? Like, I really think it was all, it was strategic. She was a pawn. She was a scapegoat. This was propaganda. Unless I'm wrong. Unless I'm completely wrong. Like, I don't know the truth, but this is the way I see it. The fact that even after all these years, the French are like, nope, we did what we did. It just makes you think like, yeah, but I do believe this is one thing like, you know, though there's all these rumors, though really 100 years later, no one really knows what actually went down. I do believe that Matahari was a woman who just ended up in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. And unfortunately, you know, because she had fabricated this tale of who she was, it probably just towards the end ended up being very difficult for her to figure out like where she stood, like she felt like she didn't really have a place anywhere or belong anywhere, which must have been so tough. And at the end of the day, she just wanted love. It was very hard for her to find this in her early life with her dad leaving, with her husband being abusive and terrible, with her son dying mysteriously. Like she had been dealt a really terrible hand and she tried to do what she could with it and ended up being labeled a spy when in fact, no one really knows if she was a spy. But we do know that she was a woman who, at the end of her life, was in love with this younger man and wanted to do anything she could to help him. And so she took on a job that she just didn't do great with. And then that was her demise. Love was her demise. But anyway, that was the story of Matahari, the spy who might have not even been a spy and most likely maybe wasn't a spy, just a woman in love. But 
yeah, I just wanted to share the truth based on what I've read, showing just how horrible these men in her life were and kind of failed her. And, um, but it's a story. And this woman, like she was who she was and she wasn't ashamed of it. And I think that's really inspiring. And the lack of blindfold, even in her last moments, tells you everything you need to know about this woman. So anyway, that's a story of Matahari. Thank you for listening. Let me know your thoughts as always. And I will be coming to you guys next Thursday with another story. I'm actually going to pre-record it before I go on my trip. So stay tuned for that. And I will talk to you guys then. Goodbye. Goodbye.